Falling oil prices and that nagging suspicion that interest rates are going to rise. What could possibly go wrong? This is Industry Focus. Hello fools, welcome to the financials edition of Industry Focus. Christine Harge is here along with our senior banking specialist, John Maxfield, and we have got lots to talk about today. A lot of buzz lately around whether or not the Fed is going to raise interest rates, how much, how soon, will the world end as a result. And we're going to shed some light on that situation in a little bit. But first, let's look at the big story in banking right now, which is energy prices. I'm going to turn it over to John and let him take the wheel on this one. John, how are falling oil prices affecting the financial sector right now? So this is something that, that we talked about a few weeks ago, Christine. And, and it's my opinion that the fall in oil prices over the last six months, it's been pretty dramatic, around 50%, will be the biggest story, not only in energy markets in 2015, but also in the banking industry in 2015. And I say that for the simple reason that if you go back and you look at the last time, other than in the midst of the financial crisis, if you look at the last time oil prices fell to this degree this quickly, that was in the 1980s, and we saw a wave of bank failures throughout the energy patch states. In fact, I was just reading a book about that time period written by a former FDIC chairman. And the FDIC is, of course, responsible for going in and, and picking up the pieces after something like this happens. It, he said that every single major bank that's based, that was based in Texas and Oklahoma at the time failed. So you, you can kind of get a sense for, for why... Uh, bank analysts and bankers and bank investors um, would be concerned about that. Now, that's not as big of a concern this time around because this time around, a lot of the big banks in the country are much better diversified. You don't have as many regional banks that are focused specifically in um, oil or energy-related assets as you did back then because back then banks weren't allowed um, in many states that weren't allowed to have branches and, and, and almost universally they were not allowed to bank over interstate lines. So just when you're thinking about the issue of, uh, of lower energy prices, that's kind of how that plays into the banking sector um, on a kind of a million mile up level. So it seems like since then, there's been a lot of learning from the mistakes. So that's definitely a good thing. Can you fill us in on some banks that maybe didn't learn their lesson quite as well? Um, who's really heavily exposed to the oil industry that we should look out for? So if you go through, it, so one way to, to look at this is to go through various banks and to look at their loan portfolios and to look at the percentage of that portfolio that is allocated to energy-related loans. And so let's just talk about some of the big banks that have large energy exposures. You have Mid-South Bank Core, uh, 20% of its loan portfolio is energy-related. BOK Financial, 19% of its um, uh, loan portfolios, energy-related, Colin Frost, which is a big bank down in the Texas area, 15% of its uh, of its total loan ex- total loan portfolios exposed to the energy sector. So, when when you think about that, there are some banks, and and, and some of these banks are, are are large, but they're nothing like your two trillion dollar, you know, J.P. Morgan's or 1.5 trillion dollar, you know, Wells Fargo or anything like that. But these are still, you know, significant players in those areas. Um, so the question is. You know, if you're either a current or a prospective investor in a bank like this, um, then the question is, well, first, how will they perform through this cycle? And there's a number of ways that you, that you can determine that. My recommendation would be to look back 
how they've performed through through cycles in the past. Like if they've made it through multiple serious energy cycles, <laughs> then you know you have a better likelihood, or it seems more reasonable to conclude that they'll make it through this one as well. Um, and let's talk about BOK Financial. So these guys have 19% of their total loans are are in the energy sector. However, if you go and you look at their loans, what you, you'll find a number of different things that that will put in, that should put investors at ease. The first is that they are they've you know they've they've seen this many 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 times because they're focused in that area. And so one of the things that they've they've done to combat the credit risk when you have volatility in the oil market is that they've moved away from oil services providers in terms of providing loans to them, and now they provide principally loans to the actual companies that um, bring the oil, that own the oil, and bring it out of the ground. And that's that's beneficial because with an oil services company, let's say something goes south, well, what do you collateralize those loans with? You maybe some equipment or stuff like that, but a lot of that equipment is worth pennies on the dollar of a, of its actual stated value. Whereas if you're loaning money to the oil companies themselves, you can collateralize that with the oil that's in the ground, and we know that that is worth something now. It may not be worth as much now, but over the t- over time, it will increase in value. I mean, I think that's that's probably a safe thing to cons- to assume. So, again, if you want to look at you know how they've done in past credit cycles, and then and then how they have positioned themselves um, in the current cycle to make it through it. So you can't just look at a single metric of exposure to the energy industry. It's it's more about the variety of exposure and what might be a, a riskier play, you know, such as the energy services companies, versus something that's kind of a, a safer way of exposing to the energy industry. So that's um, exactly right. That that's exactly right. And let me just let me just interject a couple a couple points. First is that to be completely transparent, and I'm somebody who looks and studies banks all day, almost every day. It is really difficult to get a clean picture on what a bank's exposure is and what's going to happen to that bank when they go through any type of cycle. So you're, all of this is just you're just making the best possible guess that you can make. And that's why you need to just, just really rely on, on history just to see, like, do, does this bank, do these group of banks have a pattern of making it through things in the past that they know how to do it and they've proven that in the past? And you can, you can rest um, more assured. That, that they'll be able to do um, to do so again. So you, you have to approach this type of thing with with a lot of humility um, as an investor and, and recognize that, that not only are you not in a position to know everything, um, but that the things that you probably won't be able to determine are probably the things that will be most uh, detrimental uh, to any particular bank. Yeah, that's a great point. Do you think that listening to the words and wisdom of these companies' executives could offer any additional insight? I love that question because when you think about a bank and the statements that its executives make and you read through the transcripts or you listen to the conference calls of all these different banks, one of the things that you'll find is that they all say the same thing. So what you have to do is you have to parse out the banks that are just saying things from the banks that are backing those you know words up with actions and that's where that that the historical performance comes into play on top of that a bank fundamentally is about confidence if a bank loses confidence the investors in a bank lose confidence and and i don't mean just your equity investors i mean your debt investors principally your depositors 
your warehouse loan providers, things like that. If they lose confidence in the bank, they'll start pulling their loans out, and that creates a liquidity crisis for the bank. And, and a bank can fail from a liquidity crisis. In fact, that's typically how they fail, as opposed to just simply an, a, a solvency issue. So bank investors can't, or bank CEOs and bank uh, CFOs can't get on the conference call. And even if there's really bad news, they've got to be very careful about how they present that bad news in order to stop a loss of confidence and thereby trigger a liquidity crisis for them. So there's, you can almost look at, look at it and think like, oh, well, these CEOs, in the, to a certain extent, have a fiduciary duty to, you know, I don't want to use too strong of words, but like they almost have this fiduciary duty to lie about their current condition at any one point in time, because if they overemphasize it, that could lead to failure. So you have to take the actual words with a grain of salt and really look at the historical performance over time. Good to know. That's something to watch out for. I'm going to pivot the conversation a little bit. I'm wondering now, what sort of buying opportunities have presented themselves as a result of all this aftermath with falling oil prices? Great question. If you look at some of those banks that I mentioned, and there's a list of banks that are by exposure to the oil industry, all of their stocks are down over the past year relative to the KBW Bank Index, which tracks the main banks in the country, um, which is up over the past year. So there are buying opportunities in there, all right, because these a lot of these stocks have fallen, and some of these banks are going to make it through just fine. So the question is, you know, you're going to want to go through and look at, you know, let's say your um, BOK Financial. Well, it's down 6% re- uh, over the last year, whereas the KBW Bank Index is up 6%. So when you consider that they have a history of making it through these cycles over time, on a relative basis, that looks like a buy. Now, I'm not saying that it is because you know, you'd have to really dig into the numbers to, to feel comfortable about that. Um, but there are certainly opportunities um, that come about when you have things like this happen in the market. And the, the smart investors, I can assure you, are looking at these banks that are taking hits to their stock prices, but are probably going to make it through this just fine. And what about some of the big bargain hunters, you know, the, the major players in the financial space? Are you seeing a lot of movement on their part into these banks, trying to scoop them up at these discounted rates? Yeah, we've actually seen there, there have been a number of different um, reports out recently about institutional investors moving into this space. Um, I think one of the big ones was KKR, which is a private equity firm, and, and, and other firms like that. When you see these guys moving in, because they have trained themselves to not be afraid when the market goes down, like most most investors are, and to not be too euphoric when the market goes up. So, so they are the ones who, um, when you see them making moves like this, it is worth taking note of those moves and maybe thinking about um, mimicking them in some way, shape, or form um, if you're in a position to do to and if you're in a position to do so, and if your risk tolerance um, is consistent with that. Right, of course. All right, so great insight on an issue that's definitely been getting a lot of attention lately and definitely also something that investors will want to keep an eye on. Um, let's turn our attention over to the previously mentioned issue of interest rates. So, speculation of rates rising sooner rather than later seems to be everywhere. What's your take, John? Is the Fed going to raise interest rates this year? Well, we know the Fed is going to raise interest rates. We know that for sure because interest rates are really low, and there's been a lot of conversation about them raising interest rates. The problem is that we just don't know 
when that's going to happen. If, if we're stuck in a Japan-type situation where the Federal Reserve over there has been trying to push up inflation, but it has failed since the 90s, if we're stuck in that situation, it's called a liquidity trap, then it could be years or it could be decades before interest rates really move up in any type of considerable to any type of considerable considerable degree. I personally don't think that's going to happen in the United States, but you but you never know for sure. Our, there are a number of reasons for that, but our demographics are a lot better than Japan's. Um, a, a lot of money floods into us from the rest of the world, which makes capital cheap here, which then is able to push inflation forward uh, much faster than it would in Japan, and, and, and a variety of different reasons. Um, but trying to predict whether the Fed is going to raise them this particular year is, um, in my opinion, and I would say that most financial professionals would probably agree with this, is largely a fool's errand because we just don't know. We don't know what data they're looking at. We don't know what data uh, their sh- exact targets are shooting at in various, specific, in various sectors of the economy. Um, so you can operate just assuming that interest rates are going to go up at some point, um, but trying to pinpoint if whether they're going to happen this year or next year um, is probably something that you shouldn't factor into any type of in- investment strategy. That is a wise answer and very true. Um, let's say if, however, if interest rates were to rise this year, what would be the impact? And just to keep things structured, I don't want our interest rate speculation running too wild here or anything. Let's break it down into two categories. So debtors and creditors. So if the Fed raises interest rates soon, what will be the effect first off on debtors? The effect on debtors will be that their borrowing cost goes up right now for some people like like i have a 30-year fixed rate mortgage that's not going to impact my 30-year fixed rate mortgage but who that will impact are your commercial loan borrowers because a lot of those loans are structured so that they float based upon either um, a benchmark interest rate in europe Libra, or if they float based upon uh, a benchmark here in the united states the fed funds rate or some other short-term short-term interest rates, so those will go up. So those, that'll drive down profitability in the corporate sector. Um, now, of most large corporations, it, it'll only impact them on the margin. However, there are some corporations and some types of businesses that an impact on the margin will be enough to tip them into into the abyss, if you will. And those are leveraged finance. And those are companies that previously went through leveraged buyouts. So these are companies that, let's say that um, you have ABC Corp and it had a subsidiary, XYZ Corp, and that subsidiary decided to detach from ABC Corp and and go private. And let's say a private equity firm took that private. Well, what that private equity firm is going to do is it's going to, like we buy a house, when you buy a house, you collateralize the loan to purchase the house with the house itself. Well, that's what private equity firms do when they buy companies. They buy a company, but they buy it with debt that's collateralized by the company. What that means is that that company emerges from that with a ton of debt on its balance sheet, I, I just an, an inordinate amount of debt on its balance sheet. So any increase in, in interest rates for those types of companies is a very problematic thing. And over the past few years, we've seen a ton of action in the leveraged buyout industry. So you're going to want to watch any company that has exposure to that industry. And banks aren't as big of an issue here, but what are big issue are business development corporations because they specialize in debt that is kicked out of LB, uh, leveraged buyout transactions. Um, 
And we've seen a lot of the stocks in, in the Prospect Capital Corporation and, and other companies in the BDC area, their stocks have taken considerable hits over the last year. Um, and that's the reason that has happened. And the pain uh, has really only just begun um, for that sector of the financial industry. Very interesting. All right. So let's look at the other end of the spectrum. Creditors, what will be the impact of rising interest rates on creditors? So creditors, it, it, it's interesting because, you know, so when we're talking about creditors, we're talking large, let's kind of focus our, our conversation on banks. Um, so banks are going to have there, the number of different impacts to a bank when you see interest rates either go up or down. As, you know, just speaking at, at you know, from a very general perspective, if the Federal Reserve feels comfortable raising short-term interest rates, that is a just a good sign economically, right? Because it means that things are improving. Maybe we're seeing an uptick in inflation. You know, we know that unemployment's come way down under 6%. So that would just be a good thing because typically economic activity will come along with that. A lot of these banks are, are have exposure to the payment sector. So as economic activity picks up, activity in the payment sector picks up and activities in the payment sector picks up, non-interest income will pick up at these banks. So that's a very positive thing. Another positive impact for higher interest rates for creditors is that, you know, point I made earlier, the, the, the interest rates on loans to the commercial borrowers, which makes up the, the lion's share of most portfolios at commercial banks, the loan payments on those will increase. So it'll increase the net interest income of these banks, and particularly banks that have a lot of that, that use core deposits as retail deposits that don't pay interest rates. If, they, if banks that use those to, uh, you know, to fund their assets, they will see a, a dramatic increase in their net interest income. Now, on the bad side of this, one thing that you know, is just kind of a truism in finance is that when interest rates go up, the value of fixed income securities goes down. So I'm talking about basically bonds here for, for all intents and purposes. And when you look at a bank's balance sheet, a large share of the assets they hold are fixed income securities. So we will see fixed income securities, the value of those, take a hit on bank balance sheets. Now, it'll be partially offset each quarter by an uptick in that interest income and some non-interest income, but it will take, I, I think it was last year when Bank of America's CFO estimated that it would take them between two and three years for the positive benefits of an increase in interest rates to offset the, the diminution in their asset values. So it, it'll be a mixed picture, but on net, it's certainly a good thing if we see interest rates going in that direction. Okay, great. So let's turn a little bit towards international markets. Uh, just how far might the spillover effects reach? So in international markets, when you have it, it it'll have a. Uh, my guess is that it would have a, a pretty significant impact. And I say it for this reason: when interest rates increase in a country or in an economy, and particularly particularly in an economy like the United States, that you know we're not like you know South or Central American country where they have a history of rapid inflation over and over and over again. You know, the investors have a lot of confidence in the U.S. dollar. What happens is you, ha- you make U.S.-based assets um, more valuable because the yield on those assets goes up. So that draws money in from the rest of the world. So what you'll see is you'll see capital flight from you know, China, Europe, uh, South and Central America into the rest of the world. So it, it will cause that in which you know, we've seen in the past that when you have that capital flight, 
when that comes in, that then makes gives banks and other type of credit companies the the firepower, if you will, to make more loans. So if the United States bringing that capital in um, is on net, I think probably a, a good thing. But for other countries who will see capital flight, it's, it's definitely a bad thing because the dollar will be more powerful um, at that point than uh, those other currencies. So I think it's safe to say that all the hype around this issue is pretty warranted. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, you know, we you have to remember we're still operating in the shadow of the greatest financial crisis since the Great Depression. And when you look at all the financial metrics that you're still seeing the impacts of this in, the, on the top of that list are interest rates. So, so seeing how everybody adjusts as we come out of this, I mean, it's, you're, this is a very, it's a, this is a very big thing in the financial market. Of course, yeah. So, yeah, even though nobody can really say with certainty what the Fed's next move will be, it, it certainly seems like the potential for its actions to ripple throughout the U.S. economy and the world economy as well is certainly present. Um, in any case, the Fed's actions over the next year will certainly be a worthwhile story to watch. So with that, um, let's wrap this up. John, thanks so much for your time today. And thanks to everyone for tuning in. Until next time, be sure to check out Fool.com for more great insight and analysis from John and our other Foolish contributors for all of your investing curiosities and needs. And of course, Fool on. Fool on.